Good morning. Um, my name's Colton. I have the pleasure of reading our passage this morning. <clears throat> it can be found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Um, it will be up on the screen as well. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish and in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. Colton, thanks for reading that for us. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to continue our series uh, called All Who Are Weary. And we're going to be in this text we read, Luke 16, this morning. And this teaching of Jesus, this story that Jesus tells, likely stirs many questions in us. And I am not going to answer all those questions in this sermon. There are a lot of questions that we could ask of this passage. But before we dive in to this text, I, I want to highlight for us what, what I believe to be the key verse that we're going to hone in on in this text. Now, I didn't know we just read it, but I'm going to read it again. Verse 29 says, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now Moses and the prophets is a way of referring to the totality of the Old Testament scriptures. And we are being encouraged this morning, like the rich man, to listen to the word of God. There are many truths that you can draw out from this story, I believe. But none is so important as this. That we desperately need to hear the word of God. We are prone to ignore the voice of the living God. But this morning, we need his voice to pierce through us and to redirect all of our priorities around him. So if you would pray with me now that he would do that for us, and then we'll look at Luke 16 together. Let's pray. Father, you know, we confess this morning that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. But Father, we also recognize this morning that for all of us who are in Christ, you strike us not to wound us or to harm us, but you strike us for our healing and for our good. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would confront us with, you, with your word, 
And I pray that as you do, that that pain might be part of the healing process. And that you would change our hearts from our plaguing self-focus to be drawn up in worship of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, this is the story of stark contrasts. A story of contrast between a rich man and a man named Lazarus who was poor. I think this is pretty obvious to you from the story, but let me just make this clear at the outset. When we hear rich and poor, we, we shouldn't think upper middle class and lower middle class. Right? We shouldn't think of somebody that has just a little bit more than everybody else and somebody who has just a little bit less than everybody else. These are about as polar opposite on the social strata that you can get. And the rich man is described in, in almost comically wealthy terms in these first couple verses of this passage. So it says, he's clothed in purple. Now that's the finest of outer garments. Purple was usually reserved for royalty. So you're supposed to think of this man as some wealthy royal figure. But then it says that he wore fine linens as well, which is basically like saying he had really fancy underwear on. Fine linen was your undergarments. So he had good outer clothing and his undergarment game was also on point. And this man feasted every day. Now, when we think of this guy, our picture should be of a powerful businessman driving through the streets in his Ferrari to go blow thousands of dollars on a party every night on his yacht. That's what we should think of when we think of this rich man. And this man is set in contrast to Lazarus. This man who it says is laid at his gate. And while the rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen, Lazarus is clothed in painful sores. And he's tended to by stray dogs. Not our beautiful, cute puppies that we all have and love, but stray, wild dogs. Lazarus was likely a crippled beggar who was placed on the doorsteps of this man who was so wealthy to beg for his living. Now think about this for a second. Lazarus was on this man's doorstep. Every time that Lazarus walked outside of his house, he would have to, I'm sorry, the rich man would walk outside of his house. He would open the gate and he would take one big step over Lazarus. He would step over this poor man. When the rich man took out the trash after his nightly parties, Lazarus would watch longingly that he might even have a scrap of meat still on the bone in that trash bag that he might fill himself with something. And the rich man steps over him, puts it in the trash, and comes back inside. The rich man consciously denied Lazarus. His wealth and his status and his means allow him to pass by this man who is sitting in desperate need right on his front porch. But everything changes when they die. When they die, an immediate reversal takes place in the lives of these two men. Lazarus is taken to a place of comfort. The rich man is taken to a place of torment. But not everything changes when they die. Look with me again at verse 24 and then verses 27 and 28. It says, and he, that's the rich man, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus 
to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Do you see how this man has not changed? Even as he sits in hell, he still thinks that Lazarus is at his beck and call. Like some servant boy that's going to go fetch him some water. And then in verses 27 and 28, what he is essentially saying is, can you send him to go talk to my father and five brothers? Because you didn't do enough. You didn't let me know enough to repent while I was on earth. So maybe they'll have the chance that I didn't have. This is pure hubris and pride and self-centeredness, even in the depths of hell. This man does not change. And the reason why he doesn't listen to the word of God, the reason why his family won't when they go, if, if Lazarus were to go preach to them, and all of us wouldn't either, even if someone were to come back from the dead and tell us the truth, is because to listen to God's word means to take ourselves off of the throne. To listen to God's word means that we do not listen to our own word as ultimate as primary. It's to recognize that the orbit of the world revolves around God and not around ourselves. See, the word of God confronts us in our selfishness and tells us to turn around. And so what we often do is we often sit as judges over God's word, choosing which parts we're going to allow in and sifting out other parts that make us uncomfortable or challenge us too much. And in this way, in our selfishness and pride, we all relate to God's word the way that a child relates to their parents' words when they don't want to hear what they have to say. So we're like children at the pool, and our mom and dad is telling us, hey, it's time to leave, and we keep going down under the water so that we don't have to listen to them, pop up for air, go back under the water. Or they're trying to tell us the chores that we still need to complete, and we put our fingers in our ears and run around the house and say, la, 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 I can't hear you. In our selfishness, that's what we're like. We're like immature children. And the honest truth is that you and I were never made to bear the weight of being the center of our own universe. Right? When we try, it does not work out. It's exhausting for us. We were not created with that much gravitational force, if you will. And so when we try to live out of our own selfishness, our lives fly out of orbit. So maybe for you, you want people to like you so desperately. You need people to love you. But the reality of this world is you can't make everybody like you. And so you spend your time miserably trying time after time to get people to like you, to recognize your goodness, and they don't sometimes. And so you're miserable And you're exhausted. Or maybe your default posture in your home is that you demand that your spouse or your children serve you. But as that time goes on, they are growing resentful. Maybe your spouse talks about leaving you. Your children react rebelliously. And you're left miserably trying to put up the pieces and grasp at straws. All the while, you're still demanding that they serve you. Although it might appear like self-centeredness will bring a carefree life where all of our needs are met, it really just brings exhaustion and destruction. 
to yourself and to those around you. See, this man's selfishness and our selfishness and pride causes us to ignore the very word of God that is our salvation, that is given to us for our good. So what happens then when we ignore, when our selfishness causes us to ignore the cries of God in his word? What happens? Well, the text gives us two results of what happened when our selfishness causes us to not be able to hear God in his word. The first is that the poor suffer. The poor suffer. Now, if you look in your Bibles at verse 19, you'll, you'll see that this story uh, kind of picks up in the middle of a block of Jesus' teaching. There's no like introductory formula or, formula or anything to this story. He just hops right in. But if you jump back up a few verses, we do get an introductory formula to this teaching. So let me back up, and I'm going to read for us verses 13 through 15. So it's the concluding statement of his previous parable, and then the introduction to this block of teaching that includes this parable. And I think we're going to get some insight into kind of the main thrust of this story. So look with me, jump up with your eyes, starting in verse 13 of chapter 16. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters, for either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, Jesus is talking about selfishness here in this parable. This rich man surely ignored Lazarus because he was self-centered. But Jesus is more particularly going after the ways in which our selfishness manifests itself in the way we handle our money. Jesus is signaling, singling out as his audience for this story those whose religion is certainly public, but it doesn't seep down into their wallets. They claim to hear God's word, but they are still lords over their own money. And we all know how this works. Wealth is like lighter, lighter fluid that fuels the fire of our selfish tendencies. For those who are already drowsy with selfishness, wealth is like taking a strong sleep aid. And notice something else about this parable too. Although there's a contrast being portrayed, there's only one main character. Lazarus doesn't say a word. It's only the rich man. He's simply a foil for the rich man. See, this story is about the rich man. And it's addressed to rich men who love money and ignore what the scriptures have to say about money. And friends, this is where it starts to sting a little bit, I think. Because as a congregation of financially stable people, for the most part, I think we are tempted to be all too good at ignoring some of the most fundamental commands in the Bible about our money and about the poor. See, we read Jesus say things like he says in Matthew 25, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. All of our sin against the poor is sin against Jesus himself. Or we read James chapter 2, which speaks about faith without works being a dead faith, but a passage which in context is about showing partiality to the rich and fundamentally excluding the poor from the fellowship of the church. A faith that is proven dead by its works is a faith that ignores the cries of the poor and treats them like second-class citizens. And yet, the way that we speak and the words that we say as a church, the way we act around each other, so oftentimes functionally excludes those of a lower economic status. Church, I I think, if, if you're like me, I'll just say it this way. If you're like me, then you are really good at coming up with spiritually veiled excuses to resist obeying some of Scripture's most plain commands and continue in your selfishness. I know that's what I do. Last year, my wife and I drove out to Colorado for vacation, and we had a lot of fun. But as all of you know who have made that trek out west, in order to get to Colorado, you have to pass through Kansas. And if you've never done that trek out west, driving through Kansas really is as bad as everybody says it is. It's terrible, right? It's, it's flat. Uh, there's no driving scenery. It's just wheat fields on wheat fields. Um, I'm sure there are great people in Kansas. I know people from Kansas. But the, the, uh, Jason and Benjamin would probably say there's no good people in Kansas, right? Uh, Missouri fans. But, um, but these flat Midwestern states are often, often considered flyover states, right? The states that as you're driving through them, you wish you could just fly right over. Lazarus is a flyover man for this rich man. Now, church, why do we? Why do we fly over people like Lazarus? And most of the time, it's not because we actively hate them, I don't think. We actively wish the worst on them. I certainly don't think that's the case. I think it's because we're too busy. Because we're only thinking about our own schedule. Because we're too focused on our own world. Because we are the center of our own universe. But if you are the center of your own universe, you will be unable to hear the cries of God and others. These flyover people like Lazarus, whom the world ignores and kicks to the curb. Church, who are the kinds of people that we fly over, that we step over, that our schedule says we don't have time for, that aren't important enough? Those we come into contact with regularly but choose to ignore. Maybe it's the homeless man you drive by every day on your way to work. Maybe it's someone in our own church that makes you uncomfortable because of their background and their social status and how different it is from your own. Maybe it's that relative that has gone off the rails and has gotten into some bad things and fallen on hard times and everybody in the family deems it's okay to ignore them. Who are those people in your life that it is easy to talk yourself out of loving? Not only does our deafness to God's word cause us to miss the cries of the poor, it also causes us to move on a trajectory toward hell. 
And this is a sobering point from this story. A very sobering point. See, as we said earlier, this rich man's selfishness on earth does not end when he gets to hell. In hell, he is still trying to get Lazarus to do his bidding. In hell, he is still trying to blame God for his own refusal to hear the word of God. In other words, what this passage is showing us is that hell is the trajectory. It is the culmination of our unchecked selfishness. It's that coming to full flower. And as verse 26 tells us, there is a fixed chasm between the two. The destiny is final. The destiny is ultimate. Christian author Jared Wilson has this to say about this very reality in this passage. He says this. He says, we see here in Luke 16 how frighteningly easy it is to go to hell. Like the rich man, simply mind your own business. This rich man loved himself a lot. This is very, very easy for anyone to do. And it is very, very easy to be self-involved all the way into self-destruction. See, this passage raises the stakes. If the word of God does not break through our self-consumed universe, we are getting a window into the future here in this passage of what will come of that reality in our lives. In other words, our attitude towards our money and our attitude towards the poor speak something in our present about our eternal trajectory. If we say, Keep warm and well-fed, as it says in James chapter 2, to the poor, like, La- like the rich man did to Lazarus, without lifting a finger to help. Should we expect to hear anything different when God comes in judgment? That's the hard word that this passage has for us. So church, I, I don't know what else to do other than to leave this for us here to make us squirm a little bit. What does your care for the poor say about your eternal destiny. Upon hearing these things, you may be feeling guilty or fearful or all of the above. I know I certainly was as I wrote these words this week and even as I preached them, that rises up in me. And it would be tempting for me now at this point as the preacher here to say, okay, are you afraid of hell? then go start loving the poor. Go start treating the poor well. The problem is, is that guilt and fear are not powerful enough to change us. They're not powerful enough for us to escape this eternal trajectory that we are on apart from Christ. So what do we do about that? Well, what Abraham says in verse 31 at the end of this passage, I think moves us In the direction and gives us some guidance here. Let's read verse 31. He says, If if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Even if you're someone here this morning and you're not familiar with church or Christianity, you'll still know, I think, that the guy most famous in the world for rising from the dead is Jesus. Now, but, but with that said, 
hear kind of the ominous tone in this verse. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees listening on, who would see and hear of his own resurrection, maybe even see him after he rose from the dead. He's saying that they will not even believe when he comes back from the dead and tells them in person. Now, why is that? That's a startling thing to say. Why is that? It's because even a miracle, a sign like resurrection is not enough to root out selfishness in our hearts. It's not enough. They would still have a reason to not believe what Jesus said. And so would we. Famous preacher Charles Spurgeon says this about this this verse here. He says, I declare I do not believe there would be enough evidence in all the churchyards. So churchyards, think graveyards. All graveyards used to be connected with churches. I declare I do not believe there would be enough evidence in all the graveyards in the world to convince the unbeliever. He would still cry for something more. Even a sign like resurrection cannot convince and change the selfish heart. We need more. So so if even resurrection can't do that, what makes us think that feeling guilty for a few minutes on a Sunday morning or feeling feeling fearful of hell are going to change that? We need something drastically more powerful than even a resurrection. See, the only thing with a strong enough gravitational pull to rip our selfish hearts out of the center and put them into another orbit is the heart of Jesus, the loving heart of Jesus. You see, Jesus was and is the king. He had all of the riches of heaven at his disposal, and yet he does not come to earth robed in purple, He comes to earth like Lazarus. Look at what Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3 say of Jesus. It says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus, in his humanity, was a flyover kind of guy. He comes like Lazarus, poor and plain, and he dies like a forgotten criminal. And in love, he poured himself out selflessly for you, for your selfish refusal to listen to him, and for all the hell that your sin has unleashed in his good world. He pours himself out for you. And as he sits today in resurrected power on the throne of the universe, he is pleading with you to hear him and to listen to him and to come to him and let him heal you of your selfishness. You see, the inclusion of this story in scripture is proof that God's heart for you is to repent of your selfishness and come to Jesus. He's pleading with you through this story. Come to me. Do not suffer the same fate as this rich man. See my heart of love for you. Come to me. Although you're like the rich man, Jesus wants to wrap you up in his arms and hold you close to his chest and give you comfort despite all of your selfish endeavors. This is what has the power to change our selfish hearts. 
Church, listen to his voice today. The word of God declaring to you that there is forgiveness, there is comfort for your self-centered heart and the heart of the one who gave himself up for you. That has the power to change hearts that are desperately selfish. Only the one who himself is freely selfless and loving. That is our savior. And for those of us who have our lives pulled into orbit around Jesus so that our lives are oriented around him and not ourselves, we now have the ability to love with supernatural divine love. See, when Jesus takes center stage in your life, things start to change for the better and things get a lot more interesting than our dull, selfish hearts. And a perfect example of this played out in life is in the story of Zacchaeus, recorded just a few chapters later in Luke 19. See, Zacchaeus is a wealthy man. He's a a tax collector. And he's hated, not just because he's a tax collector, which we all can get behind, but because he's an unjust tax collector. He made his wealth on the backs of hardworking Jewish citizens by overcharging them and basically stealing from them. He was hated. I taught this passage in youth group last Sunday. And I said, when Lazarus shows up on this, on the movie screen, everybody in the theater is supposed to boo at him. That's what we should be thinking. His life was all about using money to promote himself. But one day Jesus showed up in town and Lazarus's life is radically changed. Look with me. If if you'd like to flip over a few pages in your Bible to Luke 19, and I'm going to read verses five and six and then verse eight in Chapter 19. It says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If there is hope for selfish, wealthy people, Zacchaeus is our model. Jesus looks Zacchaeus in the eye and says, I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus receives Jesus joyfully. He says, my life is about you now, Jesus. He receives him with joy because he sees the heart of of Jesus for sinners, and it changes him. But then notice what happens. When it comes to what Zacchaeus does with his finances, when it comes to how Zacchaeus responds to being drawn into the loving orbit of Jesus and having his life revolve around him instead of himself, how that relates to his finances, this is my favorite part about this passage. Jesus never tells him what to do. Jesus never says, okay, Zacchaeus, now that you're following me, I need you to give half of your money to the poor and pay people back fourfold. Jesus doesn't say a word about his money. And yet his knee-jerk reaction when he embraces Jesus is to say, I'm giving this stuff up. This guy gave everything for me. I can't hold on to this. Let me give it away. This is amazing. This is transformation in the number of hours This is what the power of Jesus can do for us. 
When it comes to Jesus and our money, I think most of us are just fine to say, okay, tell me how much I need to be a good Christian and and I'll give it. Jesus, though, has way more in store for us and for his kingdom than that kind of mentality. Zacchaeus isn't thinking about how little he can give in order to make himself look good. He is thinking about how much he can give to make Jesus look good. It's just a reaction that springs up out of him. It's like an instinct. So like a mother bird knows to build nests for her eggs and to bring them back food, when we encounter Jesus, he gives us these new sets of instincts in love that just pour out of us. And one of them is a change in disposition to the way we view our money and the way we treat the poor. And so my question for us this morning is what might those gospel instincts be with regards to our money and the way we relate to, a poor, to the poor as a church? I think it's fair to say anything that makes Jesus look good and cares for people in need, go for it. Like, like get after it. Go for it. That's what we need to be doing. That's what the gospel should cause to rise up in us. So maybe you set aside money in your budget and time in your schedule to start inviting people into your home that you naturally wouldn't, particularly those that make you a little bit uncomfortable because they are outside of your socioeconomic class. And you say, you know what? I'm going to have them in my home and I'm going to shower them with the grace of Jesus and I'm going to receive from them the grace of Jesus. Or maybe you come to our elders or if you look in your bulletin, or soon to be deacons, which we're excited about, and say, I'd love to partner with the church in order to bless someone in need or people in need. Can you help me direct my money to somebody that needs it in our church? Or maybe you give of your time and money to serve our gospel partners here in Harrisburg that work with impoverished people. People like Center for Champions, who people in our church are already ingrained in their ministry. Or maybe Maybe you dream up something that's way bigger than that. Or maybe you're just like that woman who puts in two pennies. But if it's a reaction out of a change of your heart, then that's what Jesus wants from you. We need that kind of generosity. Well, this year at at youth group, we've started doing something um, that I like to call, and I, I call our our youth group call to worship. So like here in, on Sunday morning, we have a call to worship where um, Benjamin did it this morning and talked about it a little bit. It, it's basically the way of saying, we're all here this morning because God's word called us here together. And this is setting the playing field for how we're going to relate and gather together as a church. So we do something like that at youth group that we all say out loud together. If your child tells you, if you have youth group age children, that they refer to that as the cult chant, I'm really trying hard for them to not call it that anymore. So we're working on that. But we have a few things that we say that, that because the gospel changes us, things that we are, we are going to work hard and be about as a youth group to cultivate in our culture together. And this is my favorite one that we say. I'm going to read it for us. I'm not going to make you say it with me because it's not a cult chant, okay? Um, It says, we recognize that we are not as big of a deal as we think we are because all of our existence is about making Jesus look good. Simple, but so true. 
if, if we entered into life with that posture, what might the city of Harrisburg look like? How might our finances uncomfortably change? All of our existence is about making Jesus look good. And that allows us to say, we are not as big of a deal as we think we are. I want to live like that. I want that kind of posture in my own heart. But church, I pray that we would be a people who are quick to hear the word of God, to find comfort in knowing that our life is about him and not about us. And that that would drive us to be people like Zacchaeus who freely give in order to bring more and more people into, into orbit around our glorious Savior. To see more and more people see and experience what it looks like when Jesus is put on full display. Let me pray for us that we would be that kind of people and I'll invite the band back up to lead us in a few songs. Let's pray. Father, it can be easy for us when we talk about heavy and hard realities to simply want to change and claw ourselves to change and do better. Father, we want our lives to change, but we desperately need that, your power to be the reason why they change or else we won't change. So Lord, we pray that you would shower us with your spirit. Give us a heart for those who are less fortunate than ourselves. Help us to realize that we are not as big of a deal as we think we are. And that that is okay. Because you are. And you hold us up. And you provide for us. And so God, we pray that that would free us up to serve those in need. Both here in our community and out in the broader community of Harrisburg. Lord, we pray that you would see things change, that new instincts and impulses would well, in us, well up in us because of how you, Jesus, change our hearts and center them around the truth of who you are and your heart for us. We love you. We give this all into your name. Amen.